morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, March 6th, we are studying John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. In today's text, Jesus returns to Bethany. At a dinner hosted for Jesus there, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, does something extravagant for the Lord. She anoints his feet with perfume. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Andrew Jago. Pastor Jago serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Pastor Jago, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you very much. It's very good to be here and uh, talking about Bethany while I'm sitting here in Bethany. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> I, is, I assume Bethany Lutheran Church is named for the Bethany that is here named in this text? I believe so, yes. Uh, the okay. place where of Jesus' great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, and I like to tell people also the place where Jesus... Uh, ascended into heaven, according to the Gospel of Luke. All right, very good. So, the pastor of Bethany Lutheran Church to talk to us about what happens to Jesus at Bethany in John chapter 12. As we prepare to look at the beginning of John chapter 12 today, Pastor Jago, help us with some context. What should we know about the Gospel of John and what's been happening around this text to help us understand it today? Yeah, some people, you know, have John as like the first Gospel you should read. I'm not sure about that, but what I enjoy about John, and in each gospel is just very different, I think. They all approach the cross, all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The cross is the main focus of each of those, but they all approach in a different way. Matthew has those long sections of teaching. Mark, uh, we're carrying our cross as we uh, and learning about servanthood as we journey there. Uh, and then in Luke, there's there's a lot of traveling around. Makes sense, and you know that Luke traveled with Paul, and and Christians are are called followers of the way initially. Um, and then here in John, it's so it's it's at times there's some pages in the Gospel of John that are very mystic. Uh, you know, where he sounds like a mystic who's taking us deep into the mysteries of 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 God coming down to earth, the 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 Word made flesh. Um, but then there's other times where he gives us these little details. Uh, we, he's known to the high priest. He's the one, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who we believe is is the way John uh, identifies himself in this gospel. You know, sneaks Peter into the courtyard. You know, there's that little detail uh, when the disciples are sitting at the Last Supper. You know, uh, you have this wonderful moment with Thomas. Yeah, you know, the, and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus says, and Thomas says, mm, "Not so much, Lord." Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you have these, these the, you know, then it seems so human in, the, in those moments. Um, and we get, I think that here in this text, you know, John has been, has been, you know, building and building and building. He's a little different from the synoptics in that the other synoptics, I believe, and this is just Pastor Andy's theory here, you know, they arrange uh, the events, not necessarily in chronological order, but they put all the Galilee incidents in one area and all the Jerusalem, you know, incidents at the end. 
Whereas John is going back and forth in his, you know, he has Jesus going back and forth. He's there for the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, that is, in the Feast of Tabernacles. He's always going there for Passover. And uh, you know, so they, it's, it, it, these, I believe that's intentional. You know, John is, is connecting us to these feasts, and that's part of, you know, where, where Jesus is, is teaching us. We're connecting to the history of Israel there. It makes so much sense, right, in this part of his gospel. When we get toward the end, we're at the Feast of the Passover, you know, where the, where, where, you know, the, 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 the events of that day is recalled with the blood of the lamb being put over the doorposts so the angel of death passes over uh, the children of Israel, and they find themselves released, uh, going from slavery to freedom. And here John is bringing us now to the ultimate Passover, uh, where not just, you know, for, uh, where, where everyone is freed from sin, you know, spiritually, and everyone is going to receive salvation. He wants us to believe this. That's the main theme in his gospel. It comes out toward the end, after uh, the uh, right around the area where where Thomas again, you know, he he's doubting and he's and 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 wanting to put his hand in our Lord's side to to prove the resurrection. And John looks at us at that point, and he says, "These things were written so that you, dear reader, you may believe and believe and and in believing have eternal life." Now that word "believe" just appears all the way through his gospel. There's these, so John takes us to all the, the, the life of Jesus through all these different things and then really builds up right before we get to the final events. There's this great miracle in chapter 11 uh, and a foreshadowing of, of our Lord's own resurrection when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And that's in this gospel also where we meet these friends of Jesus. They appear in Luke's gospel as well. Uh, well, not Lazarus, but Mary and Martha appear. And now we find out that Mary and Martha are, are sisters and uh, to this person called Lazarus, who is a friend of Jesus. <laughs> and again, what did that look like? How do you be a friend to the transcendent Lord of all the universe? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, John takes us unabashedly into that mystery so that we can see truly Jesus, true God, Jesus, true man, and, and in believing, have life in his name. So here we are at chapter 12. Uh, and we're going to be concluding. I think John here just shows us the last incidents of Jesus' public ministry, where he's out before the people. When we get to the following chapter, chapter 13, or the next chapter, rather, chapter 13, then we're going to start the Passion account with Jesus in the upper room. He's just spending time with his disciples at that point. Uh, but everything now is being out there, is out out in the open uh, for everyone to, to witness and everyone to see. Mm. It struck me earlier as you were talking about we're getting near the end, and yet here we are starting John chapter 12, and John goes all the way to, to chapter 21, so there's oh. still quite a bit of material left in the gospel of, of St. John, and yet, you're right, we are getting near the end, we're, we're reaching the climax, bringing us to Holy Week, which we're going to start in the text that we have tomorrow with the entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, so we are getting close to the end. And it, it should, we should see just how important Holy Week is to St. John and the other evangelists as well when we notice how much space they dedicate to that week in their Gospels. Here we are again in John chapter 12, and we're getting right up to Holy Week, and he's still got quite a bit to say about that event and all the things that Jesus says and does during that week. So yes, we are getting close to the end, but there's still a lot left to read. The other thing that, that strikes me about this text 
is that, you know, in, in John 11, with the raising of Lazarus, there was so much detail given there, such a, an extended narrative that you, you can see that it is a climax within the Gospel of John. It's not the ultimate climax that's coming in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But this, this resur- or the raising of, <clears throat> excuse me, the raising of Lazarus is a, a climax. And yet there's a little bit of a I don't, lull is not the right word for the text we've got today, but there's maybe some space to breathe here after we've heard the the death threat against Jesus in the previous text, and we'll hear that they want to kill Lazarus too by the end of our text, but there feels like there's a little bit of space to breathe and and time to reflect on what all of this that we've seen with the raising of Lazarus and the plot against him, what it's going to mean for Jesus. It it seems like there's a moment to reflect here in our text. I agree. It's like those those parts of the Psalms, the the little musical note that's put in there, and I'm going to mispronounce it, Selah or Selah. And, uh, you know, you're meant to, it, the best that we could come to is, is what does that mean? Uh, pause and reflect, you know, have a moment just to pause and reflect. Um, we have a new music director here. So we're, we're uh, at Bethany. So I'm, I'm, you know, we're going through the liturgy and, and uh, you know, what the, what the rhythm looks like when we come together for Sunday morning worship. And I say, you know, once in a while, it's okay to just have silence, mm. you know, to just have a moment where, people what we we just reflect on what we just heard or what we just sang yeah so we have that moment to reflect on what jesus is about to do as we prepare to read john chapter 12 before we read the text pastor jay well no let's go ahead and read the text and then Mm -hmm. we'll talk about some comparisons with this text because as you mentioned there are many times where the synoptic gospels seem to be doing something different and there's not always an overlap between what's in the synoptic gospels and what john records But in our text for today, we do have an event that it seems overlaps with at least what Matthew and Mark write for us. So let's go ahead and and read that. This is John 12, beginning at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's our text for today. That's John 12, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Jago, it is those first eight verses in our text today that there is overlap between the synoptic gospels, especially Matthew and Mark, and there's something in Luke that maybe sounds like it, but uh, probably isn't the same account. Help us into to some of these issues, because there there are some differences that are worth noting and and making sure we understand that there's not a contradiction there. So help us into to the, some of the issues there. Well, gladly. Um, yeah, that's, it, it, normally, like... I, each gospel writer, I I advocate you know my church members to take each gospel in its as its own before you start to weave a narrative with all you know stitching them all together. 
Uh, because, like I say, otherwise, I think you miss the nuance. You miss the way in which each gospel writer wants to pre- present uh, Jesus. If you just go to each one uh, and mush them all together before you, you, you appreciate each one for its own uh, presentation of Jesus. That said, there's a lot of illumination, I think, that can happen, where one text helps to explain the other text's um, back and forth between the two, Matthew and, and Mark and John. And we'll touch on Luke, I think, here at the end. Um, so one, there's, there's things, these three accounts, uh, not Luke, but uh, Matthew, Mark, and John all have in common. They all locate the scene at Bethany. Uh, they all say that the perfume that was used was really expensive. Um, there's, there's a person or persons uh, who say that that, could have been donated to the poor. And all three have Jesus rebuking the people that, that say that against the woman who anoints him. Oh, all three have the woman, too, anointing Jesus. Uh, and all three mention the burial that is going to come uh, uh, in, the, in, in the gospel. There's a foreshadowing there of what is to come. But now, all right, so all three of them have that, but then there's some differences. Um, and this is this is one of the differences I think between John and the Synoptics. So the other Matthew and Mark they place this event after Palm Sunday, and just like you know with the the cleansing of the temple uh, in John's Gospel that occurs at the beginning, the other Synoptics put it at the end. So I tend to t- I, I I look at John as being more chronological, whereas the other Gospels because they put all the Galilee incidents in one part of their gospel and all the Jerusalem incidents at the end, they're not concerned with being chronological, you know, with this happened and then this happened and this happened, even though that's, you get the impression because that's the language that they're using, but um, we need not, you know, think of it that way. You know, there were plenty of biographers and and writers in the ancient world um, that, that were not concerned at all about uh, chronology, the way that we as, as Western thinkers, you know, we want to go in sequence one to the other. Um, so I think John here probably has, you know, it, it's not a conflict because John has the, uh, you know, the, 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 the events, you know, more in chronological order than the others are, and the others just aren't concerned about that. Um, the other one is the location. All three... I've, or no, not Matthew and Mark say the house of Simon the leper, um, and the the owner of the house actually is not named. We're 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 drawn to the names of Jesus' friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, um, but doesn't really say that it's their house. So it, they could be all there at, at the house of Simon the leper. So again, I don't see a conflict there. Uh, the woman I read on on yeah, the on the location, Pastor Jago. I I read a, I forget which commentary this was in. But I, I read a suggestion that at least some people in church history suggested that perhaps Simon the leper was the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, which, yeah. as the, the authors sa- said, that that's a very intriguing possibility, but there's obviously no way of, of proving whether that's the case or not. But but that's one way in the history of the church that some have tried to, you know, again, show that, that these things are not contradicting each other. So I thought that was interesting. So oh, yeah, keep going. Yeah. If you were writing a movie script, there's a. I think it's perfectly allowed right. to use a little sanctified imagination. You know, it's not contradicting what we think is the divine word of the Lord here, and why not? <laughs> you know, but we, but always with those little caveats. You know, that's it, it's not the same thing as you know the as the truth that we're trying to relate. Um, 
So yeah, the woman uh, is named as Mary, in fact, who's anointing the feet of Jesus. That causes some issues. We'll touch on that in a minute. Um, and the detractor or detractors. And I mean, it, it's interesting if you show from Mark to Matthew to John and Mark, it's some of the people who are gathered there. Matthew is like, no, it's the disciples this is coming from. And then John just names Judas. Well, think of this. I mean, if you, some people, you know, like I say, want to see that as a contradiction or see that as a contradiction. I see that as, you know, if you were giving testimony in law court and you had three witnesses to the events, would it be all that unusual to, you know, for one person to say, oh, yeah, some of the people were saying that. And then the second witness you call to the stand says, no, I think that was coming from the disciples. And then here's John, who really does. You know, we get the impression, at least he's the disciple who Jesus loved. Judas is the one who betrays Jesus. No, it was Judas. My eyes were right on him, man. And, you know, it was that guy. <laughs> you know, So, um, you know, it wouldn't be unusual. So, again, I don't see I think those differences are easily reconciled. Um, and also, you know, Jesus is anointed on the head in Matthew and Mark. He's anointed on his feet in John. And I say, well, why not both? <laughs> it's not really a contradiction where he could have been could have been anointed all over. Um, and the, the perfume also, I, again, this isn't really a contradiction. They're just, you know, differences of how you describe it. Pure nard, genuine nard, uh, worth about 300 denarii in John and Mark. They're very specific about that, whereas Matthew just doesn't, you know, which is unusual because Matthew, normally he's the one that tells us details about money. He's the one that told us about the coin in, that was in the, the fish with Peter uh, getting the temple tax. He's the one that tells us that Judas betrayed Jesus with 30 pieces of silver, where the other gospel writers didn't give us that detail. You would think he would he would give the, the money part here, but nope, he just says it's expensive ointment. Um, so again, you know, none of these differences are the, all that hard to reconcile, you know, they, they could, right. they could all be true and, and that, they, and they don't really contradict one another. Um, now Luke is a little different because in Luke chapter seven, there's a woman from the city uh, who is known to be a sinner is how she is described. And she comes in, uh, her name isn't given and uh, she's anointing. Uh, she has perfume there, but then she's also her tears are, are coming onto the feet of Jesus uh, and she's wiping them away with her hair. Now, that sounds like what Mary did, but that's where the similarity really ends. The, the situation and the dialogue, they're at the house of Simon, who is identified as a Pharisee. Um, and this is a teachable moment about sin and forgiveness. Um, not really. And there's no you know, foreshadowing of, of the burial and everything. Well, that didn't stop uh, the, this tradition. This start, and I have no idea where the tradition came from. I know one of the, the writers who perpetuated it. Uh, which is Pope Gregory, uh, and uh, uh, you know, saying that you know this this person is the same, and then conflating it even further with Mary Magdalene, who's mentioned in the next chapter of Luke, is a person who who had seven demons uh, exorcised from her. Um, so I, again, I think the details are so significantly different in Luke that they're really not the same the same incident. It, there, there's just a very small similarity that's there. Um, and that was a very unfortunate conflation. You know, Mary, for all we know, could have been a much older woman, but uh, as she's portrayed in, in Renaissance art and in others, she's a scarlet-haired uh, younger person. Um, you know, probably didn't have red hair among Jewish families all that much. That I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you got, you got her portrayed like that, and, and even in Jesus Christ Superstar, kind of a love interest even. So 
you know, you have that's been just blown that far out of proportion, I think, because of that early conflation of, of different Marys and different women who anoint Jesus' feet. All right. So just to kind of to sum up some of this, what we have here in John chapter 12 is likely the same account that is recorded in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, but probably not the same thing that is recorded in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 seems to be a separate incident that happens earlier in Jesus' ministry. The differences, quote, differences between those three accounts that are the same thing, John 12, Matthew 26, Mark 14, are easily reconciled. And this is where your initial comment about there is a great benefit to reading the gospel on its own to see what each individual evangelist is trying to get across by the details that he does give. It's certainly helpful to see all the details together and to see that this is one account and there aren't contradictions. The Word of God is true, but it's also helpful to see how the evangelists shape that story. They they tell that story in the way they in, intend to tell it in order to get certain points across. And so just to maybe consider one of those that you brought up, you mentioned that that it seems John is going to be more chronological when it comes to this account, such that with John placing this before the triumphal entry in the next text, he's probably got the chronology right. Well, then why did Matthew and Mark include the account right before the events of Monday, Thursday, as they do in their Gospels? Perhaps the reason, I mean, and we're not doing the study of Matthew and Mark, but just looking at those two, perhaps the reason is to highlight what happens next with the betrayal that comes with with Judas. Maybe that's, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on on that, Pastor Jago? Well, yeah, I I think you're right on. And I thought it was really interesting that even though they don't mention Judas by name, you know, in their accounts, that the account of his betrayal comes right after this anointing incident. Uh, You know, so that's, I think, a good example of how these different texts highlight, you know, illuminate one another. Yeah, yeah. So with that in mind, as we read John 12 today, what we want to look for is is what is John getting across in the way that he records this account? What does he want us to believe about Jesus? Ultimately, as you said, he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that we would have life in his name. So we're going to have the opportunity to see how John 12 fits into that purpose that he's got in mind. So take us into the setting, Pastor Jago. In the first verse, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. So talk about the time and the place. Yeah, so John just gives us a very simple chronology, and it's it's easily identifiable to Christians today with the the way that we do Holy Week. Um, you know, six days before the Passover, that would be the Sabbath before Palm Sunday. Um, and you know, further on into the Gospel, the day of preparation for the Passover, that would be a sunsets for Jewish people. Uh, which would be, and if Passover is on Friday, that would be on Thursday. On Friday, they're concerned about getting Jesus down from the cross because uh, the next day is a Sabbath. Um, so all that makes sense to me. For but there's there's some different wording in the other Synoptic Gospels. I don't want to get into that because oh my goodness, there's mountains of data that people pile on to say that maybe they're contradicting each other. There's all kinds of theories and so forth. And I, I just don't see the point in all that. <laughs> Sorry. Sure. And and I know, and there's, there's plenty of, plenty of literature, as you said, that talks about the timing of Holy Week. Yeah. And sometimes it does, it does take some, some sorting out because the way that John writes is not going to be exactly the same way 
that the synoptic writers give us the accounts in terms of the the way that they count time, especially as you mentioned with chronology earlier, Mm -hmm. but they don't contradict each other. The other difficulty that sometimes comes into play is that the way that we tend to count the days that, you know, our day starts in the morning and then ends at night. Well, the time that Jesus would have reckoned that the day begins on the evening before and then continues through to the next evening. And so you have to you have to really slow down to kind of sort all that out, as you said. But when you do, you see that, yes, the four evangelists do agree on the timing. So just for the sake of clarity, when John says six days before the Passover, when we think about this and the way we count time, we're talking about the Saturday right before Palm Sunday? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, and then he's he's at Bethany, which is where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. That recalls what happened in, in chapter 11. Why is that an important connection to make here? Well, I because of that great miracle, uh, Jesus is getting a lot of attention, and so is poor Lazarus. That's right. That's right. So how, I mean, you know, we, we have that word, where is it? Therefore, Jesus, yeah. therefore, came to Bethany. Anytime, and I don't know who told me this, I'm sure many have said it, but when we see therefore, we should ask, what's it there for? So what, <laughs> what is... Good, that's a good rule I can't, of I didn't, I didn't coin it. I didn't coin it. So what is the therefore, therefore, Pastor Diego? I, I think it's therefore looking back to the previous chapter, the very end of chapter 11, where it says, now the Passover, the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? So they're lying in wait. And and in this case, some of them are looking because they want to see the, the person who did that great miracle. But now the chief priests and the Pharisees, it says, had given orders, if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they may arrest him. Now, Jesus, you know, the funny thing about that, Jesus is not doing things in a corner. He's he's out there. He's in Bethany. He's in public view. Um, and there's a great crowd around him, so it's, he's kind of hard to miss. So I don't think that they that he was all that afraid of, uh, of the Pharisees and chief priests, but maybe nor was he in a hurry. He knows that, that this is coming. The, the events are, are about to unfold. Um, so maybe therefore he is in Bethany with his friends at this feast before all that happens. Yeah, I think this, is, this text serves as a reminder that, you know, for example, when Jesus withdraws in verse 54 of the previous chapter, it's not because he's afraid, but mm-hmm. in fact, because he is quite in the know as to what is going to happen and in control of those events. And so he goes willingly to his death, not, not unwillingly, but he goes to, as he says in John 10, lay down his life that he may take it up again. And this text, I think, is a perfect transition to see that, yes, this is what Jesus has come to do, to lay down his life. He comes to Bethany knowing what's in store for him, Jerusalem, later in Holy Week, but he goes because he has come to die as our Passover lamb. We need to take our break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Andrew Jago this morning about John chapter 12. We'll be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. 
Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, March 6th. We are studying John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11 with Pastor Andrew Jago. He serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Pastor Jago, we set the stage with verse 1. It's six days before the Passover. This is Saturday before Palm Sunday. Jesus is back in Bethany, and that's where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There's going to be a dinner for Jesus here in Bethany. It seems, as, as we said previously, that it's not necessarily the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Simon the leper is named in Mark and Matthew as his house. But Ma- Mary, Martha, Lazarus are there at this dinner for Jesus. Remind us of these, these characters in the story. Who are Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and how do they show up here? Well, Lazarus, we know just from the Gospel of John. I don't believe he makes a, an appearance in other Gospels, but Mary and Martha sure make an appearance in the Gospel of Luke. So here, again, where I'm an advocate for you know sticking with one Gospel through before jumping to the others, you may, but people may ask, well, Mary and Martha, and then you see Martha here serving. And those that are familiar with Luke chapter 10 say, aha, <laughs> that sounds familiar. Uh, Jesus, you know, was sitting at the house of Mary and Martha. Martha was busy doing many things and asked Jesus, look, you see my sister there sitting at your feet. Interesting that the location is by his feet. Uh, and she, she's not helping me tell her to help. And Jesus says, no, she has chosen the better thing, uh, to, 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 you know, um, so, so they're taking up their roles. They're, this is well. All these things are well within character, and you see this in the previous chapter. The the real tender way that they approach Jesus, and the way that Jesus speaks to them, so that they know without a, a shadow of a doubt, and we know today that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In addition to being their friend, <laughs> he is he is that as well. So Jesus is there with his friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. It is striking how in in this text, Mary and Martha do seem a lot more in those familiar roles that we know from Luke chapter 10. We talked in John chapter 11 how the conversation that Jesus has with Martha maybe expands what we think about her from just the one who serves, but no, she certainly reflects on on theological truths and, and receives that wonderful truth from Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life, as you mentioned. So the, the same people are here with Jesus yet again, makes perfect sense because they love Jesus, Jesus loves them, and in particular, in the aftermath of the raising of Lazarus, they are there. The narrative centers on what Mary does. So that takes us to verse 3. What does Mary do, Pastor Jago? Well, here is another tender scene, and I love how Luke just gives us, you know, again, sometimes he's writing like a mystic, you know, going into all the... Uh, uh, the 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 qualities of Jesus and his divinity, but here it's you, you he he tells us there was a pound of expensive 
perfume. And then as she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, taking the role of the lowliest of servants, uh, it's the lowliest of servants who, who tend to, to clean the feet, uh, the house is filled with the fragrance of perfume. So you can feel the weight of the perfume in your hand. You can smell that fragrance as it wafts through the house. Um, and you're there in that moment. And what comes up in the next chapter is Jesus putting a towel around his waist and really, I guess, chastising his disciples, but teaching them something really important, a real important lesson of love uh, when he takes their dirty feet and washes them. Mm. So here Mary does that. We have a, a pound of this expensive ointment made from pure nard. It says here that she anoints the feet of Jesus. I think you mentioned earlier that in the synoptic accounts, it's the head of Jesus that's anointed. But it, with a, a pound of this, and I, I'm no expert on perfumes, but I, I think that a pound is an awful lot of perfume. A little mm. bit goes a long way. So if, if John says the feet and the synoptics say the head, probably the if we want to have a full picture of it, all of Jesus is anointed. or at least, I, mean, right, I mean, this is more than enough to, to do a sufficient job of anointing. Uh, yeah, um, so I think you know he could have been anointed on his head as well as his feet. That that fits the narrative, right? So okay, so this is this is what happens. What are some of the? I mean, this this nard. I don't. What is pure nard? Do we know anything about what that might be? Oh, I had to look that up. <laughs> nard is. <laughs> uh, so here is my note. Nard is the head or spike of an East Indian plant, and I uh, the, and the author of that note says very fragrant. <laughs> so it's okay. mentioned other times in other Gospels, too. All right. So this is one of those texts that quite literally you can smell what's happening, and it is a, a wonderful smell as Mary just gives this extravagant gift to Jesus. She takes this pure nard, and she anoints his feet. What about the the note with her hair? Mm. That's a, a little—at least it seems strange to us. What? Why with her hair? Really, I don't know. That's a very good question. I, I, again, it's just a tender thing. Why grab a a, a rag or a towel? I guess, um, you know, it, it's just the 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 complete and utter giving of herself uh, to this person who's her friend, but also savior. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so Mary performs this extravagant deed, this extravagant gift to Jesus. And the, the house is filled with this fragrance. So it's a beautiful, beautiful smell and a beautiful act. Now comes the objection. And as you mentioned earlier, John very specifically singles out Judas Iscariot. What do we learn about Judas here? Or what does just John say about him? Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him. Yeah, it's not the first time that's been foreshadowed in John's gospel. Back in John chapter 6, after the the feeding of the 5,000 and the teaching on the, the bread of life and eat my body and drink my blood. Um, and a lot of people leaving Jesus, but Peter is saying, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Uh, so we're not going anywhere. And Jesus responds by saying, did I not choose you 12? And yet one of you is a devil. And then there John tells us a little bit that Judas is going to betray Jesus. That's why Jesus is saying one of you is a devil. Um, so that's a and that's a so that's a that's a foreshadowing. And boy, I you know to me it makes sense. You, if the disciple whom Jesus loved, I think of the image of this young John leaning against Jesus at the table, you know, and asking, you know, is is right there for the Last Supper and so forth. 
and if if one of his own, one of the people that he breaks bread with and is there day after day and sharing in all these experiences with Jesus, you know, John is just falling deeper and deeper into his faith, into his belief in Jesus, whereas Judas had already, all the way back then, at at that moment, you know, by the, the Sea of Galilee, had turned, if John's, you know, looking at John's gospel, it seems that Judas, all the way back then, had already turned his heart away from Jesus. Um, so, you know, but but maybe, I don't know if the full weight of that betrayal, you know, John is saying, no, I want you to know <laughs> this this Jesus. Which is interesting, and again, you know, again, I I think reading John's gospel on its own is 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 a good thing. After that, the other gospels do help to explain some parts. Like we wouldn't know about Judas going out and hanging himself if not for Matthew. Um, so Matthew may may gives a like a little more of a he's a little more sympathetic. I mean, it's just it seems that way. I can't say for sure, but it just seems that way as you're reading the gospels. This the fact that John mentions Judas as the one who would betray Jesus twice before the betrayal actually happens is pretty striking, perhaps especially to us as as modern readers of this text. The other Gospels also mention Judas ahead of time as the betrayer, so this is not unique to John. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing that's striking perhaps to us as modern readers is that we're often used to stories being told chronologically, and what John says here, and again in chapter 6, we might today think of as a spoiler. You know, wait a second, what do you mean he's the one who betrays him? We haven't gotten that far in the narrative yet, yeah. which is true, we haven't. I, when I see that, it's, it's one, one of the things that it reminds me is that the Gospels are meant to be read over and over, and this mm-hmm. is a story that's meant to be retold. And so if it, if it shows up at the beginning before it actually happens, that's just a reminder that this is an account we want to be familiar with, we should be familiar with, and we keep reading it so that if there's, quote, a spoiler, that's okay. The, the purpose isn't so much the, you know, oh, there's a surprise at the end, but again, that purpose of knowing who Jesus is and having faith in him. So here's one of those, those notices that we get ahead of time. This is account that should be read again and again. And, and inwardly digested, as the, the Collect for the Word says. Mm-hmm. So Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him. That's how John introduces him. And I, I think you're right to, to notice that contrast, particularly in John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, in, this, in the foil here with Judas, the one who's going to betray him. When we hear Judas's words, though, we get this objection. This is what Judas says. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? As you mentioned in Matthew and Mark, there's also an objection about the extravagance of this gift. And so that it's on the lips of Judas particularly here. And John is quick to tell us Judas's true motivation. But before we talk about that, just the objection that Judas raises and that comes up in the synoptics, again, is one of those things for us as, as modern readers. I think we're kind of sympathetic to this. Well, yeah, Jesus, why, why, why this extravagance for, for you? Why not compassion for the poor in this case? So help us into that, because I think there may be some difficulty for us still with this question. Yeah, I, I think of this in two ways. First, you know, Judas's objection, was it to make Mary look bad, or was it to, to raise an objection about Jesus, too? Or, you know, I think that's connected in there, perhaps. I, you, I, again, that's, this is just using a little sanctified imagination, perhaps. Uh, so using, like, you know, something that is worth almost a year's wages, um, it, you know, modern readers would think, okay, he has a point. But only if you take it way out of context, because you would have to know nothing about Jesus 
and and all the things that he has said and done previously, not just in John's gospel, but the other gospels as well. Uh, you know, you would have to really think poorly uh, and not know Jesus at all. You know, not not have any faith in in our Lord or not having heard about all the things he has done in order to assume that Jesus has no love for the poor <laughs> or that he thinks that, he, you know, that 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 uh, uh, that, you know, we should we should be spending all our money on him and not and, and ignore the poor. Um, and so that's that's clearly not you, know, you would have to you would have to put things in the very worst possible light in order for that to be true. Um so is Judas saying this because he's ang- he's really angry at Mary or is he trying to you know, he knows some people are going to agree with him and maybe you know it'll help make Jesus look bad or you know, give him give him a little uh knock if you will. Um so you know that we don't know but John really lays it out as far as nope Judas was doing this cuz he likes to help himself to the the community purse he was a bit of a thief uh taking things so this may have been a loss of income for him <laughs> which is why he's he's upset about it sure and maybe maybe the the reason then that we get this explanation from John is to help us to understand that this question isn't simply a neutral question that is only for our theological pondering. Now, again, we're mm-hmm. we're going to do some of that theological pondering and consider what this, you know, how this works out. But at the same time, it's it's I think helpful that John gives us this note so that we don't sort of think this is uh, that he somehow got Jesus. You know, I'm I'm reminded of the way that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, any of the opponents of Jesus during Holy Week will come up to Jesus and have this question for him. Then and they think they think they're going to get him with it. But every time you know Jesus evades their trap, he gets to the real heart of the matter. It, always, the the gospel writers give us that impression that yeah, this isn't a legitimate question. They're just trying to get Jesus, and they think they have him, but they really don't. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems like this note here about Judas serves a similar function. That as we read this account, we understand that this question isn't really the gotcha question that Judas thinks it is, and we shouldn't treat it that way either. Uh, that's a good point. Um, so one of my commentators, uh, his, his name is Lenski, he's very old school, um, but sometimes makes these really interesting observations. And, and so I, if you don't mind, I'd I just like to quote, uh, because I think it's a good application for us as we hear those words, the poor you will have with you always. Uh, sometimes I, I wince at that, but there's a balance to be struck here between uh, what we give to Jesus, and and at the same time not ignoring uh, the poor. So he writes this, A mean, low, beggarly spirit of utilitarianism is offended at every costly gift, every beautiful ornament, every display of genius and art which honor Jesus and do not rob him to enrich the poor. While we spurn this, let us not go in the opposite of extreme of which some are guilty, who do great and notable things, ostensibly in honor of Jesus, yet forget the Lazarus at the door. <laughs> now, maybe the use of the name Lazarus is a little confusing. Here, Lenski is referring to the beggar in a parable of Jesus. It just happens to have the same name as his friend Lazarus. Right. Yeah, that's in, that's recounted for us in, in Luke 16, that Lazarus. I do think that's a very helpful comment there from, from Dr. Lenski. I, I find him very helpful as well. And I, I think, you know, just thinking through that this is John writing this and, and thinking about some of the other things that we have in the New Testament from the pen of St. John, you, know, you go to his first epistle where he's very clear that the love for God 
and the love for neighbor go together. You know, we mm-hmm. love because he first loved us. And, and when we love God, we're going to love our neighbor. When we love our neighbor, we'll, we'll also love God. That's how things are meant to go together. And so, you know, to hear these words of Jesus or to, to see this scene as, you know, as Lenski says that we, we somehow think that we're, we're, you know, not, we're robbing from the poor. We're, we're missing the point, right? These things are not meant to be played off of each other, Yes. but the, the love of Jesus and the love of neighbor certainly go hand in hand. And, and probably for us today with that, what he called it a spirit, spirit of utilitarianism, mm-hmm. that's maybe the way that we're more prone to fall into that sort of temptation. And so Jesus words here are, I think are helpful to us. So let, let's talk about what he says in response to Judas in verse, verses 7 and 8. He says, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. We've kind of talked about verse 8, but verse verse 7, what is Jesus saying there? Well, that's a little hard because that she may keep it. I mean, <laughs> our modern English speaking, you know, this is the we have to remember this is a translation from the original languages and it doesn't always work. <laughs> You know, or, or we can't always make it fit into our mindset. So when we hear the word keep, we're thinking of Mary keeping it aside. And that's not obviously the case. She pours it all out, uh, pours out the perfume. So what does that word mean? I had to really look that up. And uh, so there's there's a different sense uh, the, of that word when it's, you know, we translate that we translate it into the English. And the original word means something like to note you're, you're keeping something in sight. Um, so what's in sight here is the burial of Jesus. That's something that John and Matthew and Mark all make very clear. They all connect this to Jesus and his burial. Um, so, it, it, but it just doesn't translate very well. So we, this is one case where the other writers, Matthew and Mark, you know, help it make it clear. Mark says she has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and Matthew, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Right, and and the other gospel writers make it known that that this is a beautiful thing that she's done for Jesus, that that she has done the right thing because she recognizes the great importance of what he's about to do in this coming week. That that he is going to, you know, he, what she has just seen Jesus be the resurrection and life for Lazarus. But what he's about to do in this coming week is to be the resurrection and the life for all people in the fullest sense. And so to to take this great costly gift and use it for the sake of Jesus right now is perfectly fitting. And that's where, you know, Judas's objection here just has has no merit because what Jesus is about to do is for all people. It's the greatest gift of all. And, and I think in that light, then what Jesus says in verse eight makes perfect sense, you know, you're going to have the chance to take care of the poor. So keep doing that. Mm-hmm. But what's about to happen right now in this coming week, that is the salvation of the world. Pay attention to what's going on. Don't forget about the poor by any means. Keep taking care of them. But but don't miss what's about to happen in this coming week. And that's what this, this wonderful gift of Mary in this extravagant anointing, that is what is being proclaimed in this moment. Agreed, yeah. I guess another example would be, you know, sometimes you have to spend money in church uh, if you have a church building, that is, and uh, but uh, you know, if if you love to worship God with music, you know, there's maybe a time you have to refurbish that church organ, and that takes that takes some fundraising to do that. Um, so you know, and and the point may be made. Well, shouldn't we be more concerned about this, that, and then the other thing, the other aspects of the ministry? And the response is yes, we should. You know, it's a both and, uh, not an either or. 
Yeah, that's right. Any anytime we start playing the the two great commandments against each other, love mm-hmm. God and love your neighbor, when we when we play them off against each other, we're not not running the right way. We, those those two things go together. So do both. Love God, show your love for him and in the way that you worship and in the worship space that you have according to your means, and also show love for your neighbor. I mean, do do both. They go together. And I think that's we see that in John in his in his epistles and throughout the scriptures. So let's let's make sure that we get the the rest of our text for today. We're also including verses nine to eleven. Mm-hmm. So Jesus has just been anointed by Mary for his burial ahead of time, and meanwhile, the large crowd learns that Jesus was there, and they they not only want to see Jesus, but they want to see Lazarus, and I I think I probably would too. So <laughs> what what's what's happening in these last couple of verses that we have for us today, verses nine to eleven? Well, the large crowd, we have to remember, yes, it, it, John tells us right at the beginning, this was six days before Passover. There were large crowds that would come into Jerusalem for the feast. Um, you know, in the other gospel, uh, Luke, uh, we, we refer back to that a couple of times, helping us to understand this one. Jesus had been going into Jericho. If Luke is giving that to us chronologically, that's debatable. But, you know, but, but there would be large crowds just coming down. Uh, from Galilee into Jerusalem, and here they're they're making a stop here because word has been getting around. And poor Lazarus, uh, <laughs> I just can't. He's he's a bit of a spectacle, and people want to come and talk to him. And I'm sure that was very novel and cool uh, the first day. And then as things as <laughs> as more and more people, yeah. I wonder how cool that was. Uh, but we don't know. And and uh, you know that was all in in God's plan. Uh, so the but Lazarus is also the focus here at the end because it says uh, the religious leaders then who understand you know this this what's happening there at Bethany, well now they get the idea that they're going to murder innocent poor Lazarus and the reader should be rightly outraged by that. What did he do? <laughs> he did he's he was raised he was dead and now he's alive. And you want to you want to kill him after that? You know that's that seems so awful. And it shows you how far, you know, this corruption in among the religious leaders, how far it had creeped, how far the sin infection had just taken control. And and this is this wasn't God pleasing a religion anymore. This is this is all about you know envy and selfishness and and other concerns other than the transcendental God that they're supposed to be uh, connecting people to and worshiping. Um, so there, I think that we have to keep that in mind. So be outraged about that when you read the last verse, uh, because it says many of the Jews were going away and believing. There's that word again, believing in Jesus. Well, what were they, you would, you would, you should read that and ask the question, what were they going away from? And then going to Jesus, what were they going away from? And I think it's this corruption and evil that the, of the religious leaders that was just mentioned in the verse before. Uh, we're going away from this, whatever this is, which is false religion, and going to put our faith in the one who is the resurrection and the life. The other, I mean, there, I noticed some similarities in this section to what happens in chapter 9 when Jesus heals the man who was born blind. And there's this great stir around the man trying to figure out, are you really the guy who was born blind or not? And there's this the investigation that happens. Everybody wants to see that man, similar to the way everybody wants to see Lazarus here. Also similar is the way that the the person who receives the gift from Jesus gets treated. The man born blind in John chapter 9 ends up being cast out of the synagogue because he has confessed faith in Jesus. Here, with the situation having escalated with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and they are, now want to kill Jesus, 
so they want to kill Lazarus. I mean, it's very striking. And I guess one of the things that I think you see here is you see what, what Jesus will make plain later in this gospel is that those who are connected to Jesus should expect the same treatment from the world that Jesus gets. So if they want to kill Jesus, they also want to kill the people who are with Jesus. Now, Lazarus, I suppose it seems like, well, that's not really fair to Lazarus. He was dead and just got raised. You know, it's, it's not his, quote, fault. <laughs> At the same time, we do know that Lazarus is a friend of Jesus, one whom Jesus loves, and, and one who loves Jesus as well. So, it, you know, Lazarus, I think we are right to count him as one of those disciples of Jesus in the broader sense than the Twelve. But I, I think this text is a reminder that anyone who trusts in Christ should expect to receive the same treatment as Christ received in the world. The comfort, of course, is that Christ has overcome the world, and even if the world would kill Lazarus or kill us, Christ will raise us from the dead. Yeah, we have to put our faith in the one who is the resurrection and the life. Believe, as John would have us believe, because Jesus also said the servant is not above the master. If they did those things to our master, to our Lord, well, then surely we can expect the same sort of uh, treatment from those who do not believe or do not trust in God. Pastor Jago, we have about a minute left on our morning. Help us to wrap things up on this section of John chapter 12. All right. Well, I think of a Renaissance painting, a good you know, artist who can show and express emotion. So let's paint this scene. Uh, you have this Mary, you know, bending down and, and just, you know, tenderly wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair as she is anointing. You have people in the background, some who are looking with worship and awe and some, you know, uh, who are, are, are joyful because here's Lazarus who is dead and now is alive. And, and then the scorn of Judas may be playing upon his face and some who are listening to what he says. And, you know, where is John? Is he caught up in the worship? Is he giving an accusing glare at Judas? Uh, or, or is there, or is this, uh, is he a little sad because of Jesus mentioning his burial or <laughs> maybe all three? And we go through all of those emotions as well. The caught up in the worship, a little sad because of what had to be done because uh, for our sin and for our salvation. Uh, and and uh, but also moving away from evil, which is they're portrayed by Judas, and 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 into and recognizing what is evil and what is good in this world. And we could do all that by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Pastor Andrew Jago is pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Jago, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, we would love to hear from you. Please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also download the KFUO app from your favorite app store, and you can use the open mic feature there to send a message to us. Either way, it's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.